following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. For more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. You know, last week you guys endured the heat out at the stadium, otherwise known as Champion Car Wash Field. So congratulations. And here you are back again on a, on a holiday and you decided church was the place to be. And how richly were we rewarded during that worship service? Were we not? Was that not chills going up our arm when we heard the voices of everybody worshiping? That was awesome. We, we definitely made the right decision. Uh, speaking about that, that stadium, as you remember, if you were there, Dave talked about some of his, um, you know, athletic moments that have, have um, stood out to him. And I have my own athletic moments from that field. And I just thought it would be appropriate that I get to share them. And so first I'll lay out a few of the, um, well, a few elements of the story. So first, it was the summer of the fourth grade. Okay. <laughs> and there was a new baseball bat that I had just gotten and I was going to go play in this thing called a jamboree. I'm pretty sure I'd never been in a jamboree before, but it was at the stadium, right? So I'm at the stadium and a couple other elements. Uh, there was blood and there were stitches because the way it happened is I had the new bat. I walk out on the field left side. So that's the third baseline buddy. I guess a buddy, not much of a buddy said, can I, See your bat? I said, sure. He took a step away from me about, oh, seven, eight inches, took a full swing, hit me right on the head. I heard ping. I, I remember the sound. I think I remember the sound. <clears throat> and then I remember being carried out. And I'm, you know, the concrete walls of the stadium. I remember going out there like towards the snack shack. And then my parents seeing me and then being rushed over to the emergency uh room where a young doctor, a doctor named John Kitzhaber, who later went on to be governor after he stitched my forehead, um, stitched me up. I went back. I played in the game. Now, if, if you were to listen to my dad, the way he would tell the story, I'm not sure any of this is true. I do know I played in the game. I, I did something. I hit a ball. Maybe it was a big hit. Definitely wasn't a home run because I never hit a home run in my life. I know that much. We won the game and it was all happy. So there's my moment from Legion Field. But aside from, um, you know what, we, we shared that great experience in the heat out there. Dave just delivered just a, a wonderful message from Romans 11, where Paul is essentially erupting in praise. Remember all those exclamation points. And, and it's from Romans 11 says, oh, the depths and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Exclamation point. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Another exclamation point. It was just like this big rapturous moment. Well, today we're going to consider a section of scripture that also speaks to this wisdom of God. But this time from the angle of how do we take that wisdom that is found in God and how do we apply it in our day to day lives? So we're going to be in the book of James. And this book is really recognized as being immensely practical. It's been called the Proverbs of the New Testament. You probably know this about Proverbs, but there's 31 chapters in the book of Proverbs. You can do one of those every day. And if you're on a real bent around wisdom, make this the summer of wisdom, you know, five work days a week. James is broken into five 
very bite-sized, very pithy, direct, practical chapters. It's a book that is written to saints, Christians, as Dave said, who were going through trials. They had been spread out. They had been pushed out. They had been moved away from the comforts of what they were hoping for. And, and they were going through a really difficult time. And this book from James is full of very practical things, specifically in two areas, how we are to think and then the actions we are to take against those thoughts. James really zeroes in. How should the believer be thinking in this world we're living in, and what are some practical things we should do in response to those thoughts? So if you would, please stand with me as we read uh, James 1, 1 through 10. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you make trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. Let me pray. Lord, we just thank you that your word instructs us. Lord, we open our hearts and our minds to receive from you today. We love you. We are grateful that we are gathered and we, ha- we had a chance just to worship you, to set our heart, Lord, to, to sing those words that you have been on this path before us and that in our suffering, you help us sing. And we just give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so James is a book that starts with a directive to focus on steadfastness. And even at the end of James, James chapter 5, we're told this, verse 11, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. And there's this reference to even the steadfastness of Job. So there's, there's kind of this theme going on, these bookends in the book of James about being steadfast. And so the big idea today is this. <clears throat> Life is full of trials. Yet God's wisdom is available to believers when we humbly ask for it. And so our first point is this, that our trials prepare us. You see, once James introduces himself, he goes right at it with a very, very troubling directive. And that is this, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Verse one, two, count it all joy when we meet trials, not just endurance, not just sucking it up, not just hanging on, not just, hey, try not to panic, (laughs) but be joyful. See, it's a completely different standard. And that's not to say that we're not going to have 
you know, moments of panic, moments where we, we lose our grip. As I was, I was thinking about this sermon, I had another emergency room thought. This time wasn't about me, but I ran into somebody from a church I used to attend and I come into the emergency room and I, I said something to him, small talk, and I'm pretty sure he growled at me. <laughs> it turned out he had shingles that had gone up his face and into his eye. He was not feeling joyful, right? There, there are moments, there are things that happen to us that rock us. It's, it's not realistic in the, in, the, in the moment of the emotion that it's all going to be unicorns and rainbows. We know that. I, I uh, just after I, no, before I turned 50, I crashed my boat. I wasn't wearing a life vest out in the ocean. I found a few words that I thought I'd completely forgotten in that moment. <laughs> I, well, I'm not proud of that, but it's true. Uh, I wasn't joyful. I can look back at it now, but there are these moments, these things that disrupt us. That's not what he's talking about here. Not always on happiness, but there's in the Christian life, there's, there's something about the Christian life that is joyful. It's a lifestyle of joy. It's a characteristic of our true faith over the long haul. Dave often talks about success as faithfulness to God over the long haul. We're over that long haul. As we look at our life, as others look at our lives, our lives should be marked by joy. And we're going to see in this section of scripture as it unfolds that that joy isn't at all tied to our suffering. He says, count it all joy when you face these trials. But we're not joyful because of the trials. The joy that we have is tied not to our suffering, but to our Savior. The joy that we exude, that we live with day to day, in between those moments when maybe things go a little crazy, isn't tied to our trials. It's tied to the truth that Christ has won the ultimate victory for us, that he has gone ahead of us, and it says to prepare a place for us, and that these things that we are going through now are actually preparing us for that place. Verse 2, he says, these trials that we are to experience with joy are of various kinds. There's a lot of different ways to suffer. I think we've seen that. There's health issues. There's disappointments when our expectations aren't met. There's loneliness. There's oppression. There's real persecution in some places. Then there's other stuff like tailgaters or the price of housing or all these Californians moving. There's all sorts of things we can <laughs> complain about if we try. James wasn't oblivious to this. As we said earlier, he was writing to people that were going through a very difficult time. They were being pushed from their nation. These words in James that were written were written for the comfort of the saints through the generations, saints who have fought world wars, saints that have endured things like the bubonic plague, real plagues, and then current plagues and pandemics. These words that have been written 
have comforted saints for generations, and they comfort us even today in our own community, in our own congregation. There are people here who have family members suffering under terminal illness. Just this week, I heard about a young man, a teacher in this community, committed suicide. Three young daughters. I had a client earlier this week, maybe last week. He was a little elderly, but got sick and suddenly passed. Every day, there are real and genuine trials. And it's in that context, I believe, that James was saying, not light little things that are incidental, but real suffering. And no matter how much we try to hold things all together, no matter how much we try to protect ourselves with the right insurance product or the right checklist or the right planning, we're going to face trial. It's like holding a beach ball in a pool. Try to hold that underwater very long. You can do it for a while, but pretty soon that thing is coming up because you end up, well, you've done it. You can't stop the trials from coming into your life. Rick Warren um, is a pastor out of Southern California. Um, He said, you know, I used to think life was highs and lows, valleys and peaks. He said, but now I kind of look at life more like a set of railroad tracks. And one of those railroad tracks are the blessings of God. And the other railroad track are the trials of life. And as we're going through our life, both of those things are always present. Both of those rails are always with us. But as Christians, we approach and we process and we're told to think about those trials differently. And that's because our champion, Christ himself, who knew no sin, suffered before us. He suffered betrayal from friends. He suffered unfair treatment, miscarriage of justice, and he died on the cross paying for sins that weren't his. He is our ultimate example. Why would we expect it to be different? I looked up suffering uh, through a search, and there's five references to the, the word suffering in the Old Testament. Lots of references. There's 16 of them in the New Testament after Jesus. So so just because Jesus is on the scene and forgiven us doesn't mean that we're moving into this mode of no more suffering because Jesus is on the scene. So therefore, how we suffer, how we wrestle with trials in our life really does matter. And it's important to James that we understand how the Lord uses our suffering for his purposes. And James says this in verse three, he says, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. More thinking words right there. You know, this is what you know or should know. And this is what you are to do about it. You see, the battleground to maintain a lifestyle of joy that we're instructed to do is in our mind and it's in our soul. It's not all the external things that we wrestle with. It's actually, it's in our heart. And this testing of our faith, it actually proves our faith. It proves out that we have faith. If you have faith, it's going to be tested. Don't think that that's a strange and abnormal thing. It's not. It's a very necessary and normal thing, even though there is pain involved. We're being refined We're being strengthened to endure, to lead into the things that are coming down the line. 
And James says this in verse three, that that testing produces steadfastness. You know, that's not a word we hear very often. Steadfastness. My friend, you are mighty steadfast. You know, we don't talk like that. Other translations might say endurance, perseverance, but the steadfastness, it means cheerful endurance, constancy, patience. Oh my, patient continuance, parentheses, waiting. Who likes to wait? See, but later on, James also talks about our temptations. And he reminds us, God doesn't tempt us. Nor is God tempted with evil. It says, but each one, when we're lured away and enticed by our own desires, God's not doing the tempting. But very clearly, James tells us that God tests our faith. And we know that he tests us. He does test us. He doesn't tempt us, but he tests us. And we can see examples of this in the biblical heroes. We think about Daniel, who was told very clearly, do not worship that way. And he said, I'm going to worship that way. Ends up in a lion's den. Or Moses being tempted with the children of Israel, tested rather, with the children of Israel in the wilderness. Or Job. Job is an interesting one. So why do we know of Job? If I, what's one word or idea that, that comes to mind? Somebody maybe yell it out, speak it out. Job, suffering. I heard suffering, right? This is interesting. Clearly, Job suffered. I mean, he had a lot of bad things happen to him, one after another after another, to his family, to his fortune, to his health. But before Job was known for his suffering, you know what he was known for? Wealth, he was known for his wealth, but he was known for his integrity. When the devil, the accuser himself is in front of God and they're having a little discussion about Job, God says, have you considered Job? All these bad things have happened. He's never lost his integrity. God described Job as having integrity. And then all the suffering started. So I think for us, and I know in my own life, I think, well, if I just do it right, if I just follow the rules, if I just try really hard and pray this way, and you know, maybe I can get to this lane where it's going to be smooth sailing. And is that really the goal? You see, our faith will be tested by God so that it will produce steadfastness. Verse four says this. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And you notice I highlighted the word there, let. Because let is an important part of that. We're told, present your bodies, in Romans 12.1, present your bodies a living sacrifice wholly acceptable to God. There's this idea of like this, this altar is like, Lord, here I am. I'm all yours. Jack Hayford said one time, the problem with a living sacrifice is we have this way of kind of scooching off the altar. <laughs> we don't want to stay there very long. Oh Lord, I'm yours until it gets really hot. And then I'm out, right? This process here of letting steadfastness have its full effect speaks to that. It speaks to when it's hard, when the trials are upon us, rather than protesting, fighting, 
arguing, resisting. Try to listen for that reassurance from God that he has it under control, that nothing that's hitting our life is hitting our life without first filtering through his hands. He's in the process of making us perfect, complete, lacking nothing. Let steadfastness happen. That's the active part of this. We're told how to think. We're told what to do. The what to do in this case is let. It sounds like a common call we have as believers. It sounds a lot like surrender. Sometimes that's the hardest thing is just surrender. It's been said that when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. So it's letting go of our personal kingdom to get on board with what God is doing in our lives. It's being curious and open. All right, Lord, I did not expect this curveball. I didn't, I don't actually appreciate this curveball, but it's here. What are you trying to teach me? How do I grow through this? having that attitude. We can't freak out. We can't lose our testimony. We can't eat or drink our sorrows away. That's not letting steadfastness have its full effect when we choose those easy routes out. That's actually bailing out on the very process God is going to use to grow you up. We need to let the steadfastness do the work in us. And if we do that, we're promised that we may be perfect and complete. It's an interesting phrase. Are you perfect? Are you complete? Are you lacking nothing? That's the promise of the word is that when we ask, we let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. I think that's a great scripture to wrestle with because if we're in Christ, Everything's okay. In the midst of these challenges and these trials, it's okay. Not only is it going to be okay, it's okay. He's got us now and he'll have us then. It's a different perspective. We tend to think that being perfect means we've kind of achieved some sort of perfection in our own sinless life or there's no trouble uh, or that we're going to be complete when we have everything. All of our desires have been fulfilled and, and then... And only then we'll lack nothing because I'll have all this, these things. And we're waiting for this moment when things will be good enough and, and under control enough. Then I'm going to step out and really live for God with faith out there. And sometimes what I find in my own life, and perhaps you feel this way too, is when we're waiting for perfection and completeness and all that, when I'm done with all these trials, that never comes. Or we're waiting to be good enough to step out. And what happens is sometimes we play small. We don't actually take any risks with God. We don't step out, whether that's ministry or whether that's venture or whether it's in our relationships. We're just waiting. And I think this verse says when steadfastness is doing what it does, you're going to be perfect and complete. You're not going to lack anything. There's this process. We're going to have trials. We need to meet them with joy. Our faith is going to be tested. It's going to make us strong and steadfast. And we're going to be perfect and complete. 
These are spiritual realities, not tied to our circumstances. So like many things in God's word, it's a bit counterintuitive. I'm like, it's not the way I would have done it. That just reaffirms me. I'm not God, nor am I remotely qualified. It's different. It's a different way. I would use my faith to say, I want all of the things I want to be organized so I can just walk through that. But as we all know, that's not the way God works with us as we walk with him. But it's also when we look to Christ, we see that our great leader, he suffered with a purpose. He says that enduring the shame of the cross for that joy that was set before him. He, he could see, he knew the plan. And so we can begin to understand that these trials that we go through, listen to this, they're not punishment, they're preparation. The trials that we go through in this life are not punishment, they're preparation. I was talking to a business leader uh, I've gotten to know. I really, really like him. And he was, he was talking about at this stage of life, this guy's kind of a wheeler dealer guy. He's like, I won't do business with somebody unless they've got a little bit of road rash. I'm like, road rash? He says, yeah, if somebody hasn't gone through like a major dust up, blow up, failure, whatever, he goes, I don't even want to work with them. And this, the message there is that that's where the humility and wisdom comes from. It comes from going through trials. He didn't say, unless somebody's had a personal failure, I'll never work. No, he's like, no, road rash. You have to go through some stuff to get the humility and the wisdom. Here's a, a poem I uh, picked up years ago. Uh, I want to share the last uh, stanza of it with you. It's called Hast Thou No Scar. And because it's old English, you know it's got to be good, right? Hast Thou No Scar. Amy Carmichael says this, Hast thou no wound, no wound, no scar? Yet as the master shall the servant be, and pierced are the feet that follow me. But thine are whole. Can he have followed far who has no wound nor scar? Nobody gets through this life, life unscathed. There's going to be stuff. If you're in a moment of peace, God bless you. I know you're grateful. But there's many people who aren't. That's not a mark of something being out of balance and wrong. It's a mark that we're on the path. We're on the journey. God's ways are higher than ours, different than ours. We have many questions. Picked up a great quote from uh, Lou Holtz famous football coach from uh, Notre Dame Catholic institution. Of course, you know that. So you hear these little bits of wisdom coming across from like a football coach. And here's how he brought this section to football business people. He said, losers look at adversity as punishment. He said, winners look at adversity as preparation. Wrote that on a little piece of paper, dragging it around for 15 years, I think, because I'm like, yes, that's that's straight out of James. A little different lingo, but pretty close. So things aren't perfect in your life. We call that trials. But the trials make you perfect. Catch that? Things aren't perfect in your life. You say, oh, yeah, they're not perfect. Those are trials. Oh, yeah, the trials in our life, those are there to make you perfect. 
It's a little bit counterintuitive, but that's what the word teaches us. So it's no wonder that right after that, right after scripture says, hey, count it joyful when you have these trials. James has another directive for us. He says, you better ask for wisdom, right? We're going to need some wisdom to figure that out. But here's the good news. Point two, wisdom is available upon request. It's available. This section of James is right between a section that talks about trials and another section that talks about temptation. (laughs) It's right in the middle of that. You're going to need wisdom. It says this, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. If any of you lacks wisdom, isn't, doesn't that sound a little bit like a rhetorical question? Like the other day when we we're at the 115 degree heat on Sundays, like, does anybody need water? You know, you're like, yes, we all need water. We all need wisdom. But let me ask you a question. Do you have wisdom? Feels a little bit like a trap, doesn't it? Right? Because nobody wants to say, yeah, yeah, I've got wisdom. Let me ask, if I ask you this, do you have Jesus? That's easier to answer. Yes, I have Jesus. See, we don't want sometimes to acknowledge that we have access, we have wisdom. God has given us wisdom. Back to that playing small. We don't, we don't want to be wise in our own eyes. We know that that's not how we're supposed to do it. But the key part of this verse is that we ask God, who generously gives us the wisdom, his disposition towards us is one of, I want to give it to you. Just because we don't want to be wise in our own eyes, it doesn't mean that you don't have wisdom. If we will properly acknowledge the source of that wisdom and we'll use it for his intended purpose to build up others, to glorify God, now it's working. And he says, if you need it, ask for it. I'll give it generously. You see, it's when we stop asking for wisdom that's when we actually get in trouble. Later on in James, he's, he's talking to business folk. And he says, hey, you think, you say out of your mouth, you're going to go to this city and that city and you're going to do stuff. You're going to make a bunch of money. He says, you don't even know what your life, what's going to happen in your life. He says, instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord will, we will live and do this or that. He says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. The crime wasn't going somewhere to do business. The the crime was having this attitude of, I don't need God's guidance. We're told, seek the guidance, ask. He will generously give it out to us. The danger zone is when we stop asking because we think we can figure it out on our own. So what is godly wisdom? I heard a great quote from a, a preacher out of Ohio named Alistair Begg. He's a Scottish guy. And uh, he said this, he says, wisdom, godly wisdom is this, it's God's ways in God's world. People are hungry to understand God's ways in God's world. 
even if they don't acknowledge this as God's world, there's something about every human being created in the image of God. They pick up on that. They'll recognize godly wisdom. But we're told there's a different kind of wisdom. In fact, we're bombarded with a different kind of wisdom. Later on in James 3, talks about the kind of wisdom of this world. And here's what it's marked by. It says, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast and be false with the truth. This is not wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. I think we see a lot of that. (laughs) But here's what James says about the kind of wisdom we're looking for. The kind of wisdom that gives us a hint that God's ways and God's world is this. James 3.17, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason. Imagine that, a civil conversation. Whoa. Full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. I heard a guy uh, that had been a minister at a bunch of different places uh, say this the other day. He says, you know, I've learned at this stage of my life that God speaks with an accent. And I love that because what he's talking about, that accent is the accent of wisdom. It's, it's knowing the voice of the Savior. It's being close enough with the Spirit of the Lord that when somebody says something, it, it, whoa, this, this is a little deviation. Think about how many ways God speaks to us through others, through the Bible, through his Spirit, through songs on the radio. It's like there's hundreds of ways that God speaks to us. The problem isn't that he's not speaking. The problem is that everybody else is speaking at the same time. And we need to learn to listen for that accent. And that accent accent is going to sound like wisdom. It's not just experience. It's not knowledge. It's the very spirit of God. Wisdom, ultimate wisdom, the kind of wisdom that matters is from God. It's God's ways in God's world. So to know Christ is to connect to that source of wisdom. And we know that because even before Christ came on the scene, a thousand years in advance of that, it was prophesied this about Jesus. Isaiah 11, 2. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel, and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, all of that in our Savior. So if you know Christ, you know the spirit of wisdom. And it also tells us that God's disposition, as I said, is to give to us generously without reproach. That without reproach means not begrudgingly, not going to mock you for asking again. My dad used to say, God doesn't make us hold our mouth just right so we can get what we need. I read about uh, Napoleon, part of what he would do in his palace in Versailles, he would take the nobles and these big gun people around him and he'd bring them all to the palace. And if you wanted to knock on his door, you had to grow out your pinky nail just a little bit and you'd go scratch on his little door as a way to, in my view, to humiliate that leader and to show 
if you want to come see the king, you just scratch just right on the door and I might let it in. I might behead you when you open it, but hey, God's not like that. Different spirit. He's saying, ask, I will give generously to all. And I'm not looking to find fault with you when you ask. I'm looking to pour out upon you the same way that those who come to Christ, they recognize their need for Christ They go to the generous God who gave his very best, his perfect son. They ask for forgiveness and he generously gives them forgiveness. That same process is laid out here relative to asking for wisdom. If you need it, ask for it. And that generous God will bring it to you. So we know that we have access. Talked about when Christ died, that temple was ripped and that spirit poured out. No longer, hi- no longer difficult and hiding from us. Completely available if we will just ask. Solomon, regarded as the wisest person of all time. Right? How did he get it? How did he get wise? He asked. He had just become king. God came to him in a dream, said, ask for anything. And he said, Lord, I'm just this, like this little boy. I don't know whether to come in or out. And these are your people. God said, you know what? Because you've asked this way, I'm going to pour out my wisdom upon you. He said he knew 3,000 proverbs and over 1,000 songs. We're still talking about him today because he wrote proverbs for us. That same process is available to us. Got to do a little bit of work, but we're not working for it. I think about it kind of like manna. God said, here's the manna. You got to go out and collect it, right? I think in life, we all get a little bit of wisdom. There's wisdom amongst our peers, amongst the counselors around us. It's like a little bit of a scavenger hunt, I think. You got to get to know the right people. And if you get enough of us together, we're almost like we're one body and we get to do stuff, right? But nobody gets all the gifts. Nobody gets all the wisdom. We get some wisdom and we, we keep with the hunger. We have to have that right posture though. And I believe that that right posture is this, it's humility and asking because asking in humility is that first step of surrender. But we're also told to ask in faith for six, seven and eight. It says we ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea. And that person should not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man. So when we ask in faith, we're not asking, we don't have faith in our faith. We have faith in God. We don't have faith in our, we love frameworks and processes and procedures. We don't have faith in our procedures. We have faith in our God. We don't have faith in our ability to ask just right. We have faith in our God. But we're not supposed to doubt. Doubt what? I think it's doubt his capability. Doubt his heart towards us. Doubt his nature. I think those are the areas, at least in my life, that I, I, I might doubt. And I, and I think the doubting that we really do, at least the doubting I really do, as I give a kind of this maybe weak sauce prayer, and then I go about it solving the problem as if I didn't pray at all. I say, Lord, 
I need you to do this. I want you to do this. Yet I go about looking at the problem with no expectation that God will do it as if it's completely up to me. And so in my life, I think that's what being double-minded looks like. It looks like on one hand saying, oh, I'm a Christian and I trust in God and his purposes and his eternal plan and all that. Yet I live like I've got to go make it happen. A double-minded person just can't decide, am I saved because of how hard I work or because of God's grace? Can I truly rely on God or will he let me down? Do I have to fight for my rights in every situation and trial? Or can I trust God? He'll work it out. He's my provider. Am I holding this world all together? Or is God? Will he really give me wisdom? Or am I on my own here? That to me is what the wrestling feels like when I'm being double-minded. Being stuck in the middle between those two positions, that's what makes us double-minded. Unstable, driven and tossed. That doesn't sound like fun. Worse than that, we shouldn't, receive, we shouldn't expect we will receive anything. That's what it says. We should not suppose we'll receive anything. So there's something disqualifying about asking with doubt. So we should be mindful of that. And point three, let's talk a little bit about God's wisdom bringing us perspective. And so as we see these last two verses, verses nine and 10, I'll read them and then I'll kind of debrief on them a bit. It says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. And I like how this section of scripture is right after wisdom because I think it speaks to the reality of just how short this life really is. And in some ways that's comforting because when things are really hard, we're like, I'm not going to have to endure this forever. But in other ways, I think it's intended to give us a message of perspective that If you're lowly, if if things are going poorly, and according to the world, what winning looks like, you're not winning. He says, you need to rejoice or boast in your exaltation. You may not be winning by the worldly standards, but you've got the thing that matters most. You've got eternal home with Christ, and you're walking with him between now and there. Regardless of your circumstances and the difficulty that you're going through, you are exalted with Christ. That's what's real, not what we see. And if things are going well, it says, let the rich in his humiliation, and then that reminder, because like a flower of the grass, we're all going to pass away. So what does winning look like? Wisdom gives us perspective. Wisdom from God helps us to see that the winning in the kingdom of God looks a lot different than in this this world. Wisdom is understanding God's ways in God's world. We get to 
get up above it a bit and, and think thoughts around what is a God who's outside of time, who sees the beginning and the end? What is God up to in my life? And how do I tap into that? I can begin to have a bit more of an eternal perspective as Dan talked about inviting us to hear about legacy at the men's breakfast next Saturday. It's like, how do we have an eternal perspective in everything we're doing? Even those trials that we're enduring. And it helps us to realize, wisdom helps us to realize that it's God's kingdom. It's not our kingdom. We spend a lot of time, I spend a lot of time building my own kingdom. Not aware enough about building God's kingdom. So this section that tails off here in 9 and 10 speaks to the brevity of life, but it reassures us there's also a brevity of this suffering. And if you're on the upside right now and you feel like, you know what, I'm really not struggling that much, I think gratitude would suggest that that's a perfect time to minister and care for others around you, to play your part in the kingdom of God. Because if we just look around us, there's always going to be somebody going through something and suffering. Lots of opportunities to serve. So what do we see in this section of scripture from 1 to 10? We see that these trials are really preparing us. And because of that truth, we need to receive them with joy and we need to live a lifestyle of joy. We see a generous God offering us wisdom so that we can figure out how to work through those trials with that sense of joy. That's not going to be a natural thing. That's going to be a God thing. And we can have confidence that through that suffering, through the suffering that touches our life, God's not punishing us. He's actually preparing us for what he has in store for us in the future. He's promised eternal life to anybody that would call upon his name. He's offered that he will exchange your sin for the righteousness of Christ, completely forgiven for anybody who asks simply by believing that and taking him up on his offer, an offer that's being made from a generous God who says who gave his very best to make a way for you to be reconciled to him. So if you're here today and you've never done that, that's actually step one. You see, I want a lot of God. I want a lot of wisdom. I, I, I want that wisdom. First step, you want Christ. If you're listening online or at a later time and you haven't made that decision, this is a perfect time. Make that decision. Answering and responding to God's call and his offer of eternal life is the most important decision you'll ever make. It is the most wise decision you'll ever make. And so I'd invite you, take time to take that step today. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we uh, thank you for your word. We thank you that it instructs us. We thank you that... Uh, you give us the ability to walk out this joy, Lord, even when things are, are difficult. Uh, we do pray that you would give us perspective through your word, uh, Lord, that we would walk in the wisdom you give us and that we would also seek the wisdom you have for us, Lord. Lord, let us be hungry uh, for you and to grow in you. Help us to see that these trials that we face are, are not punishment, Lord, but they're preparation for what you are preparing us for. 
Help us to do what we do in joy, Lord. Help us to be more and more dependent upon you. And we thank you for your goodness. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.